It's a joy to be with everyone this morning as we come to the last section in 1 Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians for about a year and one month, and for many of you, that's all that you've heard. Problems and problems and problems of a church. And, uh, and we're coming to the end, and thankfully, Paul is actually ending on a good note. And so we'll get to that and to the reason why he's ending on this good note, and I'm sure that will be encouragement to both you and me. Uh, we're saved ultimately not because of our good works. We're saved through the good work of Jesus and what he's done for us, and we're to celebrate that. Um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19 to 24, and read this last section together. And it says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for the celebration of who you are here in our church. Uh, we're grateful that we get to come and think about you and have your spirit be impacting our hearts through songs, uh, through our own voices, uh, through hearing another person sing as we congregate together and now as we are listening to your word together. We know, Lord, that as we're listening to your word, it's not a passive action uh, in a sense that we're simply sitting down and receiving, but rather is an active action in our hearts to engage with the Holy Spirit who is at work in our hearts to remind us, encourage us in how we're to apply what we heard in our own lives specifically. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us to, um, to celebrate you and to live according to your will this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In different countries, you have different ways of saying hello. In Tibet, you would stick out your tongue, and this is practiced by the Buddhist monks uh, who would stick out their tongue as a way of showing peace to the person that they're greeting. In Yemen and much of the Middle East, you would rub your noses. You put your noses together and you rub them as a matter of saying hello to another person. In France and Italy and Spain, you would kiss the air, but kiss on the cheek, and that would be a way which you would say hello. In New Zealand, you would rub your forehead and your noses together in a manner which they call the sharing of breath. You know, a country with shaking of hands, which is great. In Zimbabwe and Mozambique, you have the clapping of hands. In Malaysia, there is the putting the hand on the heart. In Cambodia, India, and Japan, you have the bowing down before the person. In Greenland and also in Shania, there is the sniffing of faces. You will press your face together and sniff each other. <laughs> That's a welcoming thing that you do. And I'm sure you will make the other person feel very much welcome that you're willing to do that. Um, in all cases, you have different ways of saying hello. But they all are achieving a similar goal. The goal is to make the person feel welcome, to make, make the person feel accepted, and that you're unified with the person as one. That is the goal. In fact, that very welcoming gesture, figuratively speaking, is the gesture which God has shown us in the very beginning. God created us. And when, when he created us, he said this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, 
it was very good. Everything he created was good, but when he created mankind, we were very good. And perhaps when we open our eyes, these are the very first words which we heard. We heard God saying to us that we were very good. It's a wonderful way of welcoming us into his presence. It's a wonderful way of knowing that we're accepted by him. We were one with Christ. We were one with God, and of course, Christ was there in the beginning as well. He is God who created us. However, what we also know is that we did not take that wonderful welcome in a manner which we should. We took it for granted. That welcome was very short-lived. That unity was very short-lived. Satan came to us and said to us, did God really say? This is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And all of a sudden, we are not so sure anymore what God did say. Did God have the right intention for us? Did God truly love us? Did God really want us to have the best in this world? Why would he withhold anything away from us? Why that tree? So all of a sudden, we did not believe in God anymore, and we ate the fruit, and eating the fruit is one physical act, but it was far more devious as far as the reason why we did it. The reason why we did it is because we wanted to be our own God. That's what Satan said. You don't need God anymore. You can be your own God, you knowing good and evil. So we wanted to control our own destiny, and here we are today. The world is not better because we did so, but worse. This world, we see all kinds of sins, all kinds of evil. Sins, what Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are the sins which are in our own hearts and eventually gets played out in our action and are destroying our own lives and destroying the lives of those who are around us. Sin does destroy. And God could have judged us. And he should have. And he could have. And if he did, perhaps the Bible would have ended in Genesis chapter 3. That would have been it. Wouldn't we have the whole book of the Bible to read from? I mean, we sinned. We violated God's holiness. We're judged. We're gone. But you know what God didn't? You see, God is love. The rest of Scripture is God's intention to save us from our own sins and to bring us into his presence again. And this is done through the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the prince who came to rescue the people back unto himself. He came to live the perfect life, the perfect life which he lived not for himself but for us because he is already perfect. But he lived that perfect life to give that righteous life to you and to me. And he died on the cross. As he died on the cross, he was paying, not for his own sins, but the punishment which we deserve. And he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, he was indeed rising, not for himself because he was already eternal, but he was rising to show us that he has conquered sin and conquered death. And thereby we, if we believe unto him, we will also conquer sin and conquer death. The promise of salvation is for us. If we believe unto him, we shall follow his pathway. We shall be in the presence of our Lord, of our Savior. And as we are, as we are, we're called to be unified with him as well as unified with all who believe unto him. Jesus said these words in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another, and by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, we love God, but we're also called to love one another. We're not just saved individually. We're saved corporately. In our corporate action as a church, we're called to be unified as one. There are two elements, two factors in Christian theology which unifies us. We're unified ultimately by our love for one another, and we're also unified by our love for God. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're unified by our love for one another and our love for God. So first, let's look at our love, our love for one another as a matter of what unifies us. Verse 19 and 21, we see these words. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So as we come to this passage, we're really coming to the end of 1 Corinthians. It's been a long journey for many of us. And if you've been here for one year, this is all that you heard. You heard Paul speaking to the Corinthian church on the matter of unity, on the matter of purity, on the matter of holiness, on the matter of love, on the matter of service. There were a variety of different issues which Paul has been instructing the Corinthian church in. And all the things that he has been instructing the Corinthian church in, he's been instructing the Corinthian church as a matter of admonition, as a matter of rebuke. The Corinthian church is not a healthy church to a large extent, so Paul had a lot of material to work with. He did. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we saw is Paul rebuking the Corinthian church for their pride. They had pride against one another for who they followed. We see this in chapter 1, verse 12. Paul rebukes them by saying, what I mean is that each one of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They were boasting of who they followed. And Paul says, you should not boast in anyone except boast in Christ. This is sin, the sin of comparison. And then there are also those who were partaking in sexual immorality. We saw a particular heinous sin in which a man had his father's wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 it says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So this needed to be rebuked. This needed to be addressed. This is sexual immorality. This is incest. This is happening within the church, and they weren't addressing it, and Paul now addresses it in a letter. There were also those who were taking advantage of others financially. They were taking each other to court and seeking to take money from one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul says, You yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's rebuking those who are taking one another to court. And there are those who are following idolatry. They're bowing down to idols, and those idols were not God, of course. They were eating food offered to idols, but they were also attending these pagan practices, pagan rituals. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Then there were those who were misusing the Lord's table. They were coming to the Lord's table. And you must remember back in those days, the Lord's table was a love feast. It was a gathering in which men and men and women and women, or all of us together, are looking at each other and we're unified at one table accepting one another in Christ as we eat together. But that wasn't what was happening. People were coming to the Lord's table at different times. They were eating all the food and leaving none for others. And 
They were satisfied in their own flesh instead of being satisfied in the spirit with Christ and with one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, 22, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They were wronging one another at the practice of the Lord's table, and there were also those who were serving from pride and looking down on others. Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, there are those who are saying to one another, I have no need of you. The eye was saying to the hand, I have no need of you. The head to the feet have no need of you, just simply because they were those who were in higher positions, quote-unquote, or stage positions. They were looking at others who were working in the background within the church and saying, I have no need of you, and that is sin. They weren't operating from love, of course. They were just serving from their own self-ambition, self-satisfaction. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I am noisy, gone, or clang cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have all the faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can do all kinds of things for God. And these are the things perhaps you would celebrate yourself and other people would celebrate but if you didn't do it from love, it's nothing before God. And then there were also those who denied the resurrection. This is what we saw a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They were saying there is no resurrection. And Paul says if there's no resurrection, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That can't be true. If there's no resurrection, our faith is in vain. Our lives are to be pitied. Because we made all these sacrifices for the Lord and it all comes down to nothing. We're all going to just arrive at the same destination. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, I have been very clear to you what the gospel message is. I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. You must understand the gospel. You must understand the truth. You must understand the resurrection. So what we're seeing are really throughout this book, variety of ways which the Corinthian church have failed. Failed horribly, and Paul has been on them hard throughout this entire book. But as it comes to the concluding remarks of this book, he must remember something, and this is something which he did in the very beginning, which is that he thanked God for this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, we see this. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He gave thanks to God for them. Now, was God simply, or was Paul simply just saying that just to get away in and get their attention? Or was he one who really meant it? Did he really mean this? Did he really thank God for this church? It didn't seem like there are many reasons why he would thank God for as far as this church is concerned. But they are. They are, namely because for one reason, and that is God saved them. He saved them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. These are saints. These are holy ones of God. You say, well, that doesn't look like it throughout this entire book. 
doesn't look like the holy ones, but the reason why we're holy is not because we live perfectly for Christ. That's not the case for any one of us. The reason why we're holy is because why? It's because of Jesus, right? Who made us holy, who died on the cross, who rose again for us, and that is why we're holy. God looks at us not by our own good works, but because of Jesus who died on the cross for us. He covers us. Now, as far as we're concerned, we're called to continue to follow him. And Paul does see that in this church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor doctors, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were that, but that is not who you are anymore. You may still struggle with that, but then you move forward now. You move forward to the place where you are now seeking after God. You're seeking not to have that in your life anymore, but you're seeking to put on righteousness. And Paul does see that in this church. As much as they're struggling, there are people in the church, and there are many of them who are seeking to follow God genuinely. So Paul says to them, you are a church. You're sanctified. We see this in chapter 1, verse 2. You're called to be saints together with everyone else who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We're one with everyone else who follow Jesus. In this very sense, Paul sees unity. It's unity. There's unity in Christ for all of us. And if there's unity in Christ, we're called to love one another. And John chapter 15, verse 12 says, we're to love one another as God loves us. And it is in unity, Paul is writing this last portion in which many churches, and himself included in this greeting, are coming to the church of Corinth and greeting them with a greeting of love. We see this in verse 19 to 20. It says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greeting in the Lord, and all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So first of all, we're going to see greetings, but we might just look at this and say, well, you know what? These are just normal greetings of saying hello. There aren't too much to learn from this. Why not just skip this and went to the, or go to the next book, which we are going to go to. But there are actually three important principles which you could see from this greeting which are present here in this passage. Three important principles. Number one, this is a greeting among strangers. It's like you going to another person who you don't know and saying hello. It's a greeting of faith. The reason why we say this is because the church of Asia, we see in this verse 19, where as they're sending their greetings, they have never met the Corinthian church before. They're two different places. Paul, in the very beginning, wanted to go to Asia. We saw this in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, in his second missionary journey. But he had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So what he did is he went up the northern part of Asia, and he went to Troas, as he went to Troas, he crossed over the Asian Sea and went to Macedonia, planted the church of Philippi, came down, planted the church at Thessalonica, came down and went to the church of Corinth, or actually planted the church of Corinth, and there he stayed for a year and a half, establishing the church there. And on his way back, he passed by Ephesus, which is in Asia. But he wasn't able to stay there for long. 
In Acts chapter 18, verse 21, Paul said to the people of Ephesus, went back to Jerusalem. As he started his third missionary journey, he was able to go to Asia this time. The Holy Spirit did not forbid him. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we see this. It happened that while Paulus was in Corinth, Paul passed through the England country, and that is Asia, and came to Ephesus. And there he established the church there. And there were many churches that birthed as a result of Paul's ministry. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, we see the church in Colossae, church in Laodicea, church in Heriopolis. We see more churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2. There were the seven churches in Asia Minor, likely all influenced by Apostle Paul's work. But they're not the church which Corinthian church knew because they're, again, two different places. Paul planted the church of Corinth first. Then he went to Ephesus to plant the churches in Asia. So the churches in Asia, they do not know who is it they're speaking to personally. They don't know them. But they're greeting them by faith. They're greeting them because they know that these people are part of the church of God. It's like you going to another person who we never know, and it's likely that there are people in this church you don't know. And you're going to that person because that person is sitting at church, and you're looking around, and you're saying, well, that person looks like he is attentive to the Word of God, that he's singing songs unto the Lord. So he's a Christian, so I'm going to go there and say hello to that person. That's what they're doing. It's a greeting among strangers. Principle number one, when you greet one another in the Lord, many times you have to greet a person who is a stranger. It's a biblical principle of hospitality. It's a greeting among those who you don't know, a greeting among strangers, a love among strangers. The second characteristic of this greeting is that it's a greeting of action. It's a greeting of action. It's a greeting not just with words, but with certain action, certain things which you do with the other person. We see this in verse 20. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, as we read this, we say, well, do we really have to do this? Well, holy kiss was a, was a cultural thing. It's a cultural way of expressing to another person, I love you and I care for you. Now, there are kisses, which are like the kisses today, which we operate in, and you would not kiss another person unless you're romantically involved with the person. That is true. In the Bible, there is a kiss that is romantic. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. You have the woman saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So there's a romantic kiss that is described in Scripture. There's also a hypocritical kiss, a, a kiss that is uh, evil, described or scripted to Judas. Matthew chapter 26, verse 49, he says, Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. So Judas kissed Jesus with a hypocritical kiss. Well, this holy kiss is neither hypocritical nor is it romantic. It's a kiss of showing to another person that you accept another person in your presence. You love this person. You're going to receive this person. It is a kiss of Isaac and Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, verse 26, 27, where Isaac said to him, that is to Jacob, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And after that, Isaac blessed Jacob. It was a kiss of acceptance. It was also a kiss of caring for one another. This is displayed in Exodus chapter 18, verse 7, where Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. When you kiss one another, you're asking one another how you are doing. It's a kiss of caring for another person. It is also a kiss of reconciliation. Luke chapter 15, verse 20, we see this. Between the prodigal son and the father, 
the father rose and came to, or the, the son rose and came to the father while he was still a long way off. The father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him and kissed him. By this kiss, the father is showing to the son, I forgive you. You're received back into my presence. So you have greetings here, a greeting of action, a greeting towards strangers. And lastly, we're going to see in verse 21, it's also a greeting that is of personal commitment. See how the church should respond? It's a greeting of personal commitment in verse 21. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Not only is Paul encouraging them to be full of action in the sense that you're to receive one another, you're to accept one another, you're to care for one another, you're to greet one another who are people you don't know, you are to put your own signature in your own greeting. Paul says, I am greeting you with my own hand. What happened back in those days is that people would write, but not themselves. They would dictate, and the menuances would come and write for them. So the menuances is the person who writes, and likely this, pen, this man is the brother Sosthenes, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. So Paul would dictate, dictate the letter, but at the end of the letter, what Paul would do is that he would take the letter from Sotheny's or another amenuensis and say, I'm going to put my personal touch to show that this is from me. It's like you're putting your name on a certain product. You're putting your name on a certain building. You're putting your name on activity. You want to make sure that because your name is on it, that is done well, right? You're not just saying this simply because you had to say it. You're saying it and you know that you're going to be judged by what you're going to say. So therefore you are putting your name on top of it to say that you could judge me on this, you could criticize me on this, and you find that this thing which I'm doing is indeed genuine. And that's what Paul is doing. He says, I am putting my own hand upon this. I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. This is what the church ought to do. The church ought to receive one another in such a way. We ought to love one another, even though we're strangers. We ought to care for one another. Say, how are you to one another? We're to forgive one another. We're to put our personal affection personal touch, personal commitment, you know, greeting with one another. We're to do this within the church of God. This is how God designed for church to be. Now, churches struggle with this. In fact, in the last two years, churches will struggle with this even more. In fact, perhaps for the years to come, we will struggle with this. You know, there is a movement in church history in the last three years that's unlike anything that happened within churches before. You know what that is? The rise of live streaming in church services. If you come and tell me in 2020 or 2019 saying, hey, Richard, let's start a live streaming service for our church, I would say, you are nuts. Why would you do that? All the people, all the churches that are live streaming their services are prosperity gospel churches. They're out on the TV, you see them Saturday morning, they're asking people for money and I'm saying, I'm not going to be like that. All my friends and all my pastor friends who are preaching the gospel at the seminary which I come from and I'm interacting with the pastors who graduate from there, none of them have live streaming in their services. And that's their mega church maybe, but many of them are not. If you're a church as small as ours, you're not worried about live streaming your service. You're going to just put your audio on the internet and people listen to your sermon and that's about it. Who would live stream their services? Well, then it happened the pandemic occurred. And people are staying home, and we need to stay home to protect our own health for a season, for a reason, and end up having to live stream our services. And just like that, all of us became televangelists. We did. Overnight, we all became televangelists. And the gospel preaching churches too. 
And so what happens is that, and the positive aspect of this is that people are actually listening to the gospel online. That's the good thing. I've seen so many people, and people are coming to our church, and they're professing to me that, hey, I saw your church on YouTube, and I've been watching you preach. I'm watching the service for the last uh, three, three months. Another woman came to us and said, I've been watching for the last two years. It was last week. It's like, wow. And she finally showed up. And it was a wonderful way to introduce people to Jesus because I understand people are afraid to come to church. If you're not a believer, you're thinking all these thoughts about church and you have the wrong perception of the church and you're thinking maybe people are not going to accept you and so you're afraid to step into your church. I get that. I get that. And so the live stream of services and putting your service online really help people to get acclimated to the setting of a church. But you know what the negative thing is? The drop of church attendance. Not our church, okay? We actually rose in attendance. But many churches drop in their attendance all over America. Christianity Today actually did an article just surveying all the people who used to come to church and who don't come to church anymore, and there's a drop. All across all of age groups, from the boomers to the Gen Zers. There's less than the boomers, but the Gen Zers is 32%. 32% of people surveyed said that they used to go to church before the pandemic, but they don't go to church now. And the pandemic is, as well as we know, the emergency is over and still not coming to church. Still left out on the outside, just happy to receive the word of God, perhaps from live streaming, but they don't really care to be part of the setting where people are gathered. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that people are live streaming. I'm thankful people are watching online. I'm thankful if you're watching, I'm not saying anything bad about that. I think it's wonderful that you at least receive the word of God. I think that's good. I think it's wonderful. But if you are doing just that and nothing else, you're missing out on so much what God has to offer through the church. So much. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we see these words, and this is not a struggle just in our days, but also in ancient times. The writer of Hebrews says, We're not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we're not to neglect meeting together. And people can make it out of the habit, right? You start once, you do it twice, all of a sudden you're just thinking, it's really nice for me to just stay home on Sunday morning, right? You wake up in the morning and say, I just don't feel like going to church today. Don't we all feel that at times? Yes, of course. Of course, sometimes even pastors feel like that. I don't feel like preaching today, right? I don't feel like serving today. I don't feel like showing up today. And people can make it out of habit. But the writer of Hebrews says we need to actually come because if you don't come, you can't fulfill the second part of this passage, which is that we're to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can you encourage another person in the Lord if you're not here? You can't. You can't write on YouTube and say, well, hello, everybody. And only Mark in the back sees it. And perhaps Dakota sees it and Trevor sees it. But any one of us who are sitting not by the computer, none of us sees that. Can't see it. Can't be encouraged by you. So you need to show up. Another question is, if, if you love another person, if you greet another person with the same kind of affection that God greets you, or if God greets you with the same affection that you greet another person, would you still be here? That's a question, right? Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I loved you. 
If God treated you the way that you're treating others, would you still be here? Answer is probably no. We're thankful that God doesn't treat us like we treat others. We're thankful that God doesn't greet us like we greet others. We're thankful that God doesn't duck out on us the way we duck out on others. Right? We're thankful for that. But then God's commanding us that we would love another person as he has loved us. So these are the considerations we need to have in our minds. It's not to be legalistic, but are we practicing Christian love of greeting one another within the church as God calls us to here in this chapter, in this passage? So we're motivated by love. We're motivated by our love for one another. We're unified in that, but we're also unified by our love for Christ. We're loved also or unified by our love for Christ. Christ's love unifies us. We see this in verse 22 to 24. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the end of the passage. And Paul here is encouraging the Corinthian church to love the Lord. He warns them, saying in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So first of all, let's see what the love of the Lord is. What does it mean to love the Lord? Perhaps the best definition is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a commandment of God for us to love the Lord, to love him. And as we love him, we might think, well, you know what? Maybe this is just an ethereal idea, some kind of vague idea, a virtual idea maybe, but God actually gives us definition for it right after in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 9. This is what love looks like. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's what love is. You should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and it turns out that you are going to talk about him all the time. You're going to talk about him. You're going to think about him. You're going to be considering him. You're going to be talking about the Lord with your children. When you're working, you're going to be talking about him. When you're walking by the way, you're thinking about him. When you lie down before you go to sleep, you're thinking about the Lord. That's what love is. You're passionately in love in a way that you're always having the Lord in your mind. You are in love with God. But if you don't have it, if you don't have it, verse 22, it says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, that means that you don't think about the Lord and you have no consideration of Him and you're not thinking about how you're going to serve Him. You're not talking about the Lord to anyone else. Paul said, you are not saved. Let Him be accursed. The word accursed is what anathema. Literally means that you're not saved. You're not part of God's kingdom. You're not part of God's children. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul used the same word saying, but if we or an angel from heaven shall preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It means that you do not know the Lord. It means that you have believed the wrong gospel. You have not believed the true gospel of Christ. You are not saved. Now, as we read this, we might feel a little burden in our hearts and say, well, is this really what salvation is? Salvation is me loving the Lord. And if I don't love the Lord, what, what, then I'm not saved. Yes, but we have to understand also is that this is not reason why we're saved. We're not saved by our love for the Lord. 
Jesus said, this is not that you love me, but I love you. But love is an attribute of our salvation. We're saved ultimately by faith, through faith, actually, by grace, by the works of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus saved you. He died on the cross for you, and you received that salvation through faith, through faith. And you're created righteousness through faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You're given righteousness. You're imputed righteousness. Righteousness is placed upon you as a result of your faith in Christ. So what does love have anything to do with this? Well, it turns out that love is a fruit a fruit of your faith, a fruit of your life lived out for Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 17 and 20, in this, Jesus said, so, in every, well, so every tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So you're going to have fruit as a Christian. You're going to have a way of you lived out as a Christian as a result of you believing in Jesus. What does that fruit look like? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We are to have the fruit of the Spirit, all encompassed by the first fruit, which is love. Love. We are to love. Love God and love people. Now, this might seem kind of ethereal to you still. So what does it mean to love? Well, we don't do everything perfectly for the Lord. Jesus did command that we would love him. And if we do love him, we will follow his commandments. But we don't follow his commandments perfectly. None of us do. And it's true. We sin against God from time to time. But there is a real emotion which we have that's described here in verse 22 which is the emotion that we should all have if we truly love the Lord. And it's a pure emotion, I believe. It's an emotion describing three words in verse 22. Our Lord come. You see, there is a longing, longing for Jesus. You don't do life perfectly, neither do I. We don't live our lives in such a way that we're perfectly holy before God, right? We don't. But we do long to be with the Lord. You see, this is a pure longing. We want to be with him. Christianity ultimately is a moralism. Moralism is when people say, you know what, I want to be a Christian because I want to be a better person. You have the wrong motive, brother. Christianity is not about you being a better person. Christianity is ultimately about you having a relationship with a person. That is Jesus. And that you long to be with this person. That you long to speak with this person. You long to be in the presence of this person. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about you fulfilling some kind of earthly dream of being a better you or being more moralistic and being more successful. It's about you being attached to an individual forever. That's Jesus. And so if you have that longing of love, then you are one of his. That should be a pure heart. That you would say, I'd rather be with him. I'd rather have him than the riches of this world. 
or anything else of this world or the fame of this world. Rather have him and him alone. If you have this, you would really change the way which you assess everything else in this world. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, 25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. You may struggle with sin, but then leads you to be thankful. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God rescues me from my sin. I don't live my life perfectly, but I'm looking forward to Christ who is going to rescue me, to the Christ who is going to be with me. In that day, I no longer sin anymore. This is the forelooking of a Christian faith, which gives evidence to the fact that we're true believers. We just want to be with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 to 57, Paul again cries out, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be forever victorious in Christ when we do see him again. This is our hope. Our hope is to be with him. That is a pure longing from our heart. All of us who are believers should have that pure longing. Otherwise, Christianity is just simple moralism to you. It's not moralism. It's attachment to a person. If that's true, Paul ends this letter in verse 23 to 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You have this? You have the grace of Jesus Christ. The great salvation is with you. And my love in Christ also is with you. Amen. This is what unifies us. See, today we might have different things that we may be interested in. Different things are our preferences. Different things are our, our backgrounds. Different things which are our experiences. And perhaps you come from a different church and perhaps you're used to a different denomination and different practice and different church ministry philosophy. But what truly unifies us if you look at another brother in Christ and say, you know what, that person just visited, I'm not really sure where he's at and other things, but I know that he's a believer. Is that enough to cause you to love the person in Christ? I think it is. This is a lesson that Jesus gave to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, in which he says to the Samaritan woman, and it's really a surprising conversation to the Samaritan woman because the Samaritan woman did not even expect Jesus to have this conversation with her. She's thinking, why are you, being a Jew, talking to me, a woman from Samaria? And she even said in John chapter 4, verse 20, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place people are out of worship. He says, we can never be the same. We're so different from one another. We're so different. We'll never ever be together as one. Jesus said this in verse 23. The hour is coming. And now it's here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking for such people to worship him. This is truth. You may have different practice. You may worship here. You may worship there. But Jesus says, all this is going to come to an end one day. The hour is coming where everyone will worship God from their heart, and God is going to look at their heart, assess the quality and the truthfulness of their worship. That's going to be reality of our gathering. And that's going to be reality of our unity as well. And the Samaritan woman is doubtful of this. She said in verse 25, well, I, I, I guess, but I know that when the Messiah is coming, he is coming, and he was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. I know we're to be unified around Christ. 
And Jesus said plainly in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. That's who I am. So unify around what? Not around our cultural practices, not around our ethnicity, not even around our preferences or church music or whether it be contemporary or traditional. I mean, as a church, yes, we have a way of doing things. That's right. Every church has its ministry philosophy because we have to gather around and we have to be organizationally cognizant. That's true. But when you shake hands with another brother in the Lord and someone comes and visits you, whether you are going to love another person or not as you're making that decision, you're not thinking about, well, this is a person a Baptist? Is the person a Presbyterian? Does the person baptize infants? Is the person at a communion once a month or once a week? You're not thinking about these things. You're thinking about whether this person knows the Lord. If the person does and longs for the Lord, as Paul says he should here in this passage, then he or she is a brother or sister in the Lord, and you love the person. You take a step of faith to engage this person. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, these words, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who had made us both one, has broken down his flesh, a dividing wall of hostility. There are many walls of hostility. Back in those days, the wall of hostility, as we see here in this passage, is between Jews and Gentiles. They have social, economic, spiritual, religious walls all built up. So they're never going to get together with each one. But Paul says, in Christ, all these are broken down. All these are broken down. We need to break down our wall of hostility as well. Take a step of faith to greet one another, to build relationship with one another, to say hello to each other, to say, I'm going to risk a friendship with you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we see Paul encouraging us with another phrase. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither certain there is male and female. There are Jews and Greeks. But when we come together, we're one in Christ. One, accepting of one another, loving one another. And the question is, are we doing so today in our fellowship? See, Hollywood is a place where we hesitate to do so. It's true. Because people come in and out of this fellowship, and Hollywood is a place where many unscrupulous folks come in and go, and they're seeking to take advantage of others and make a name for themselves, etc. It's hard to find an authentic biblical community in which we're trusting one another and in which we know that we're watching another's back and we're not going to hurt one another. That's hard to find. But that's not to say we aren't doing it or we shouldn't aspire to do it, that we shouldn't be the biblical community that God has called us to be. We should. That's going to take some steps of faith for many of us. Now, I'm not saying that you don't sit and look and observe for a while and happy that you're doing so. Many of you are new visitors to our church and you're sitting here, you're just observing, you're wondering if the church is right for you. And that's wonderful. And you should do that because you should assess and see if this is the church that God is calling you to be here for. You should. But at some point, at some point, you have to make the decision about your own contribution to the kingdom of God. At some point. Because the church is not just a restaurant where you come in and get served. A church is a place where you, after you come in and get served, you're going to stand up, pick up an apron, put on yourself, and go to the kitchen and make some food for other people who are sitting there. That's what church is all about. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do that right away. I'm happy that you're here. And if you're saying, you know what, Richard, you're just kind of guilt tripping me. I'm not doing that. I'm happy that you're here. I'm happy that you're receiving the word of God. I'm happy that if that's all that you do, 
That's all that you do. I'm, I'm happy for that, okay? So it's not to embarrass anybody who doesn't do that, okay? I'm happy. But you need to consider this, and I need to consider this, is that God's called us to a compelling community, a biblical community that cannot simply be achieved by passivity. Cannot. You cannot be passive. You cannot wait around and just kind of wait for this relationship to build and wait for this love to build. Somebody has to take a step of faith and reach out to another person. And that person may be you. You might be the one who needs to take a step of faith and reach out to another person and say, how are you? Hello, how can I serve you? And how do you do so? Well, I think if we're uncomfortable to do so, the only way that we could be comfortable or be compelled to do so is to realize the Word of God actually tells us to do so. If you know God's commanding you or God's asking you to reach out and to take a step of faith and to say hello to another person, that may be the good reason for you to do so, even if you're uncomfortable in doing so. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful motivation to know that God is calling you to do it, and you're going to do it even though you're uncomfortable. And as you do so, God is also calling to something else, which is that you should serve. Because the moment you start serving, you're not thinking about how good the food is. Oh, should I stay here? Maybe I'll just go to the restaurant next, next door or down the street. You're thinking about how you can make this place better, right? The moment that you start serving, the moment you start giving, the moment you start giving of yourself, that is, you're thinking about how you can make this place better for the glory of God and how it can make this place more welcoming and more of the biblical community that it needs to be. So serve. If you do serve, then your heart attitude does change in which you're more and more in love with those people who are here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, we see Peter commanding these words, as each had received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a command on God. Whatever it is that you've been given, serve the Lord with that. I think in order for us to have such compelling community, we must look into the wonderful lyrics of Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. Think about that song. Do you know that song? It says these words. The colors of the rainbow. And you might even just hear that song as I'm saying these words. The colors of the rainbow. So pretty in the sky. And also on the faces of people passing by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn so much more they'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. May this be the portrayal of our church, right? And we see people shaking hands saying, how do you do? And people are coming here and say, what a wonderful church. What a wonderful church. Amen? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful that we get to conclude 1 Corinthians in such a way to think about what a wonderful church that this is and this should be and will be. We're thankful for that, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us to be such a church for your glory. Uh, such a wonderful journey we've taken. Bless us, Lord, as we're now engaging in the singing of your songs, Lord, for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.